From CBC Radio, this is Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein. Today's show, The Believers. I was on the subway the other day, and I didn't have a book with me, so I didn't have anything to do but to look at the other people who were riding with me. I don't know if you ever do this, where you just start scanning faces on the metro car, looking for some kind of common denominator among all the various faces you see. Like, maybe you'll realize that you're on a car where everyone is uncommonly attractive, or everyone has a look of yearning about them. Like, if I can spot some obvious sign of something so overtly coincidental, some obvious pattern, that I'd have proof that God was trying to tell us something by grouping us in ways that, should we notice, might prove illuminating. Anyway, something like that. So I was looking at the faces in my car, and I was looking at them not only to see what pattern or uniformity might be made clear to me, but also with an eye towards how I might fit into the commonality of the greater subway car group, as though this awareness might offer me some greater self-knowledge. Like if all the people on the train were, were all smart-looking, then I too can consider myself to be smart, because we're all here together on the smart car. So because I didn't have a book on this particular day, I noticed something that I probably wouldn't have otherwise noticed. And what I noticed when I looked around the subway car was that it was filled with people who had an oddly stoic, almost kind of deadpan quality. It's hard to explain. It was as though they were staring into a TV camera while thinking something to the effect of, what the hell am I doing here? In this metro car, in this city, in this life. But it wasn't exactly a depressed look. In fact, it was a, a look touched by a certain kind of vague hopefulness. So I'm looking around and I make eye contact with this old man sitting opposite me. He's wearing a green cap advertising tractors or something like that. He was sort of grizzled looking, with a, like, a, like a white stubbly beard. And he had the milkiest blue eyes. We continued to look at each other. And then he smiled. So I, you know, I sort of nodded. I would have smiled back, but I can't, I can't make myself smile. Actually, when I try to do it, when I try to fake smile, it usually looks like a grimace. Like I've just touched something hot, or I've suddenly remembered some repressed memory. Anyway, he continued to look at me and, and smile. Now, at this point, had I had my book, I would have looked down at it and gone back to reading. But because I did not have a book, I felt oddly naked and unprotected, with nowhere to hide behind. So I tried out one of my smile-slash-grimaces. He continued to look at me, smiling, but still looking at me. It was then that I bowed my head and pulled out my metro transfer and studied it, every inch of it. So a few stops later, when it was time to get off, the old man with the milky blue eyes got off too. They walked alongside of me on the subway platform. We walked alongside of each other in silence. If someone were watching us, they would have assumed we were together, like a father and son or something. And I wasn't sure how I felt about that. So I just looked straight ahead and tried not to think about him, though I was pretty sure that he was probably looking at me. So now would have been the time when certain people, other types, would have turned to him and said something like, 
Nice weather we're having, huh? Instead, I continued to walk, speeding up my pace a little to pass him. It was then that the old man spoke. The thing about you, he said, getting all squinty-eyed, is that you need to relax. You should take long walks. Have you ever tried it? Walking with no particular destination, your hands clasped behind your back? At this I smiled, genuinely. I genuinely smiled. Because I love when people say to me things that start off with, the thing about you. I love hearing the thing about me, even if it is spoken by strangers. I always appreciate the effort, even if it is completely not the thing about me. In this case, though, it really was the thing about me. I, I could most definitely benefit by, by more walks. So I told him that I did like taking walks, but unfortunately, I didn't always have time for it. Make the time, he said. I wake up at five in the morning, have myself some hard-boiled eggs, some Melba toast, and I walk for an hour, and it really puts me right. So at this point, I'm thinking something around the lines of old men and their walks. They go together like chocolate and peanut butter. When he grabbed me by the sleeve and stopped abruptly. Look, I can't keep up with you, he said. He said this a little out of breath. And I can see you have places to go. So let me just get this out of the way. I don't know how to put this. And I wish I was better at this kind of thing. This is the hardest part of my job, and I just don't have what you call a delicate touch. So, all right, here it is. I'm your guardian angel. We just stood there near the metro track, staring at each other. Are you a part of some kind of religious group, I asked. Do you call yourselves the guardian angels? That would have been the thing that made the most sense. And what a come on that would be. No name tags, no pamphlets, no ringing doorbells. Just smiling old men approaching you on the subway. But he said that no, he was not a part of a religious group. I'm strictly non-denominational, he said. So when you say guardian angel, I said, you mean what exactly? That I was sent to earth to watch over you, he responded. Everyone wants a guardian angel, no? He asked. I guess it was true. If you had a guardian angel, someone watching over you, someone watching out for you all the time, watching all the stupid private things you do, and still walking away as in love with you as ever. You wouldn't have to keep journals. None of your private life would be wasted. It would all be stored away and important somehow. Angels would be like God's video cameras. I could explain more, he said. Why don't we go for coffee? And whether he was going to ask me for money or ask me to believe in something crazy, it was all the same. It was, it was that kind of thing. And I just wasn't in the mood. So I told him I didn't have time, that I was running late. And then all of a sudden he spreads out his arms towards me. I can't do this alone, he says. You're going to have to meet me halfway. The possibility that maybe, just maybe I wanted to hear what he had to say, I was inclined to follow him into a coffee shop to hear it made me feel spiritually needy and weak. To even be contemplating the possibility of following him, not ultimately believing him, mind you, but just following him, was enough to kind of frighten me. I mean, am I so hungry for solace, 
that I'd be willing to follow a crazy person into a coffee shop in the middle of the day just because he singled me out. Look, I just can't do this right now, I said. Now, I won't go into all the details about how he sadly smiled or how he nodded knowingly or even how he waved to me as I left as though he was erasing himself from my life forever. And I'm not going to go off into some kind of fantastical flight about how when I turned around to look at him once again after I'd walked off, how he'd vanished into thin air. He hadn't. He was still there, just sort of looking down at the metro tracks. His mind on other things. Perhaps other confused-looking men looking for angels that he could approach. It started to dawn on me that the reason I left him wasn't because I didn't believe him. It was because I did believe him, and for no good reason. And believing him like that made me feel completely crazy. There was one time a few years ago when I was walking down the street and I turned a corner and standing there was this woman with her arms positioned as though she were holding a gun, something like a machine gun. It was an invisible machine gun, a gun only she could see. She had these wild eyes and wherever I moved trying to get out of the way, she would aim the gun right back at me, always keeping me in her sight. And so, looking at her, I knew there wasn't a gun. And yet, there was a part of me that believed in the gun that she believed in, just a little bit. And I felt, like, like bizarrely scared of it, you know, as though it was going to actually start magically shooting invisible bullets at me. Just because of the sheer force of her own belief, the way she held it, you know, even though it wasn't there. I don't know, it's something like, like, sometimes it feels like belief is contagious, even crazy belief. I'm not especially religious, and I haven't been into the occult since I'm a kid. And yet irrationally, I just believed the old man. It was as simple as that. I just did. Maybe just a little bit, but it scared me that I did. And I mean, and realize that, like, that believing in something like that requires quite a leap. I mean, not only does it mean that I have to take the old man's words at face value, but I also have to believe all kinds of supporting details. You know, like stuff like that, that there's, you know, believe that there's a God who dispatches angels. That there's, that there's a heaven where the angels live. And naturally, if there's a heaven, there's got to be a hell. And if there's a hell, there are demons, the devil, life after death. And not to mention that if there were angels, that they'd be riding metros and looking to recruit a little business. But anyway, here I was believing as though belief was this natural function that a person had no control over, like it was sneezing, like it was breathing. When I was 10 years old, if someone had told me that one day, as an adult, I'd be approached by a guardian angel and that I would turn the angel away, I would have decided then and there that my life was going to be a bust. Such a thing would have been completely inconceivable to me, like turning down tickets to see the Globetrotters or something. You know, there should have been another angel, like a preceding angel, a kind of ancillary pre-op angel, just to prime me, you know, to show up and clue me into the real guardian angel that was due to approach me. This would be an angel who, who could have trained with me, you know, had me do exercises to get me all ready for the big moment. Because I wasn't ready for it. 
You see, a real guardian angel would have thought of something like that. A real guardian angel would have been watching over me from the get-go. I would have made sure I wouldn't screw up our first meeting by walking away like that. A real guardian angel would have planned it out and would have had the foresight to have never let that happen. this way? Have you ever asked him to leave like this? No. No. God, and how long have you guys been together now? What's like, let's see, 95. So it's like almost, no, it's 10 years, actually. Yeah. You know, I was I was with you guys the night that you met. I know. I mean, things have been just been going on and on, and Tony's not easy, you know. He's not really open to change, mm-hmm. and um, and he doesn't have a whole lot of ambition. And you know, the fact that he's just worked at that 
at the vault, you know, for almost the whole time I've known him. You mean the the film vault? The film vault, yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, he, you know, he got that job initially. Well, his dad got him the job, and then he hated it. And it's been almost 10 years, and he sits in that stupid film vault and just answers the phone. And the phone never rings. And so, and that's what he does. And, and you think, like, most normal people would say, okay, I've had enough. I'm now 35. I need to think about something else, like having kids and having a career and, and you know, buying a house and doing those kinds of things. And he just doesn't. Like, he just he's just content to, to do that, you know? And it's not, like, very... He's not using his brain. And he's a smart guy. And I know he just sits there and reads comic books all day. Um, do, do you think I'm just crazy? No, I mean, I think... I think you just, you know, you, you want what you want. And there's nothing... I mean, there's nothing there's nothing crazy or wrong about that. But I think, like, he he has certain fears about what kind of a dad he would make. Just from, like, what his childhood was like and what his dad was like. I know, but I also feel like he should just, like, take control of his own life, you know? He's not going to be his dad. I mean, his dad is just... He's not his dad. And he's more... He's more self-aware, you know? And mm-hmm. I, I think he'd be a really good dad. I think he just doesn't believe that he could be. Well, d- okay. So did, did he... Yeah. Did he ever tell you the story about um, the time his dad caught him smoking? No. He found cigarettes. He found a pack of cigarettes, and it was like a full pack of cigarettes mm-hmm. in his jean jacket. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, took the cigarettes and basically went into his room and was like, you know, I found these in your jacket, whatever. Are they yours? And he and Tony was like, you know, they're not mine. I'm holding them for a friend, that whole thing. And so his dad, like, took him out on the back porch and ordered him to smoke every single one of the cigarettes. And he got really sick. He got really, really sick. And and there's something that's so cruel about that. Like, if you found cigarettes that your kid had, would you would you do that? Would you, like, make your kid smoke every single one? And the weirdest thing is, is, like, if you are a parent and you think that's going to act as, like, a deterrent, I mean, like, look at Tony. The guy's, he's a chain smoker. Well, yeah, I know. When I first met him, like, there were a lot of things that, there were a lot of times when, like, he would just, he would just f*** up all the time. Like, we would make a plan to meet somewhere at the movies or something, and he just wouldn't show up. And I just remember this one time, I was supposed to meet him, um, we are going to, it was my niece's, we were having a, like, a dance recital or whatever, and he was supposed to meet me there and he just never showed up and I, it was really embarrassing and I had to explain to my sister you know that where he was and I just made up some story like that they had like you know he was doing overtime at the vault or whatever and I could just tell that she didn't quite believe me and I knew exactly where he was I knew he was going to be at the bar just you know after the after the recital, like my sister had gone home, my niece had gone home, and I went to the bar and he was sitting there, and he just, I just was, I was, you know, I was mad, and he saw that I was mad, and he just immediately looked so sorry and drunk, 
And I just remember kissing him on the forehead and kissing him knowing, like, how pathetic he seemed, but, like, loving him at the same time, like, loving him so much and just having so much sympathy. This is what the way I thought then. Like, he just wasn't of this world. Like, he just, he just needed a break, and, like, the world really sucked, and he just needed a break, and, and I was that buffer between the world and him. But I didn't resent him then. I just kind of lost that ability to just let things go. I'm worried about him, like he's living with his parents. But I also have to just take control of my own life, and I can't. I had to, I had to do something. I mean, I feel, I feel a little weird talking to you about this, just because, you know, he's really, you know, one of your oldest friends, and but I have to be honest with you too. Like, I, I mean, I, I mean, I have, yeah, I was. I thought about calling him, but I just... I think if you called him, I think it would really mean a lot to him, Jonathan. Like, I, I think he... I just think he needs to know that, like, people care about him and people are concerned about him, and I think that you're... you're the best person to do that at, at this point. The thing, though, with Tony is that whenever he's hurting... He just gets like really touchy, and um, and and everything I say just ends up like really rubbing him the wrong way, you know, and annoying him. And and um, I think you should try. I think you should just try. I think you should call him. I don't know. Are you uh, are you afraid of me? No, why? Well, I just, uh, I don't know, I, I just kind of get the impression that you are a little bit, I mean, I've known you for a long time. It, it, it could be that somehow you... you well, maybe maybe I'm just showing a little bit more concern. Whether it's, you call it concern or, or, or you call it fear, it's still a kind of a, um, uh, you know, you don't want to set me off. Uh, and, and that's really no way to talk to somebody. I mean... Uh, it, well, you see, I feel like I'm setting you off right now. Well, I think I'm legitimately upset because, you know, I, I hope that somebody that I consider a friend can, can feel free to say whatever whatever he wants to me without being afraid of... I mean, you don't have to bullshit with me, you know. Now, you want to say something? You want to ask me something? You want to you want to be direct? Go ahead and be direct, you know? There's something you... I mean, you know, if, if, and if I can't do it or if I'm not, you know, up to whatever, you know, I'll say so. You know, you know I can do that. <clears throat> All right, well, I guess what, 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 what exactly did happen with you and Mary? With me and Mary? Well, what did you hear? I mean, just, you know, like, be direct. Well, I hear, you know, she, she, for one thing, she threw you out of the house. I, I left. I left because it was, it was, it was just not, uh, it, was not it, was, it was not a good... Were you uncomfortable talking about this? No, not at all. I mean, how come you didn't bring it up with me then? I didn't feel the need to bring it up. I didn't know we were going to be talking about this. I didn't know this was on your mind. It wasn't on mine. Yeah, it's obviously on some people's minds, though, even though it's not on mine. Um, yeah, I'm staying with my parents now. I, I, I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to live next, and um, and 
Mary's doing what Mary does, and, you know, there's no problem. How long has it been since you've been out of there? Uh, about a month and a half. But you must know that. <laughs> you, seem to know, you seem to know more than you let on. Like, why don't you be direct? Like, what exactly did Mary say to you or to whoever told you about it? Well, she said that she asked you to leave the house. Okay. And 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 you took it a you know took it a little further and, and it threw you out. Has a very different implication than you know asked you to leave the house, or or, or it was decided between the two of us that you know I, I should leave. You know what people do. Like the next logical step for most people in a situation like this. Uh, there's two. There's two ways to go. You get thrown out, as you put it, or you know, you get married and have children to further solidify the the absolute and total denial that everything is. I can barely maintain a, a level of acceptable responsibility for my own life. Never mind, you know, a, a fresh, freshly minted human being. You know, so uh, at least we're not married with children. <laughs> is uh, what I have to say about that. If I talk to her, is there any message you want me to relay? Well, you... No, if she's still whining, you can tell her that I'm sorry. And I am genuinely sorry. Well, what are you sorry for? What do you mean, what am I sorry for? What did you do that you're sorry about? What? Okay, have you actually talked to her? Can you just be straight with me and, talk, and tell me if you've talked to her about getting her full version of what happened? I've talked to her, yeah. You have, okay. Yeah. So what you're telling me is that she isn't sorry about anything. Well, I'm not saying that she isn't or she is. Okay. I'm just asking, so I'm wondering why you're sorry. What she's sorry about, you probably have an idea of what I'm sorry about because we're both responsible, guilty, equally of the same thing. I've done the same thing that everybody in every relationship always on this planet has done, which is lie lie i'm a liar and she's a liar and together we were happy liars and then when we stopped lying it was like you get out of my face because you're not lying anymore because you got to lie to keep people happy that's what i'm sorry about i'm sorry i kept lying i'm sorry i played the game do you remember when you first met mary yeah, she was working at that bar on uh, St. Catherine. I don't remember what it was called, but... And do you remember what you said to me about about her the first time you saw her? Uh, I, I said, uh, she's hot. I said, uh, I said, I said, do you actually know her? Does she have a boyfriend or some stupid thing like that? No, you said to me that you, you pointed at her, and you said, that's the woman I'm going to marry. I did? Was I drunk? Must have been. Possibly, I mean, but yeah. I uh, but I had never heard you say that before. That's kind of a sad story. <laughs> I don't think I've ever been that certain of anything. Well, what did I know? I don't think I could ever be that certain of, of something about something like that again. 
Hold on a second. No! I don't want... I already told you I don't want anything else to eat. So, hold on. How many how many hamburgers can a person eat? I don't care. I don't. I don't care. Just put them away. I told you I don't want any more. Well, throw them out. Throw them out. I don't. Just just leave me alone. I don't need hamburgers right now. Voices you heard in part two of Wiretap were Wendy Dore and Tony Asimakopoulos. Wiretap is written and performed by Jonathan Goldstein and produced by Jonathan Goldstein with Sarah Gilbert and Carolyn Warren. Production help from Mira Bertwintonic. Reach us through our website at cbc.ca slash wiretap. <laughs>